1: ready? I was born ready.
0: Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. Uh, this is David French with Sarah Isker. And Sarah, the Supreme Court did some big things today.
1: You know what they didn't do though, David?
0: Decide Espinoza.
1: That's right. They didn't decide Espinoza. It's it's a joke. It's the first thing my husband said to me today.
0: <laughs> they will not decide Espinosa until you stop saying they're going to decide Espinosa.
1: <laughs> it, it's now the by far the latest outstanding case. Yes. So this yes. is
0: funny. I, I expect it tomorrow. I'm gonna I'll do the predicting this time. I expect it tomorrow. <laughs> but we did get Yes. big cases, Um, maybe 2.2. We got the June medical case, which is the first abortion decision of the new post-Trump election court. We received, got CELA law, which is the CFPB case, uh, important case for separation of powers. And we got the U.S. Agency for International Development case, which is a case involving the reach of the First Amendment beyond the borders of the United States. And so uh, that one we'll save for last. And we're just going to go ahead and be really upfront with you guys. These are long cases that just were handed down exactly, well, the the first one was handed down exactly two hours and 13 minutes ago from when we're recording this. Uh, June Medical was handed down less than two hours ago. It's a long case with a long majority opinion. Long dissents, lots to unpack here. I've already gotten into a Twitter squabble with some of my friends about it, uh, because I have perhaps the most pessimistic take on the case from a pro life perspective, but we'll break all that down and why I might be wrong to be pessimistic. Um, And then, so we've really, uh, Sarah and I have mostly uh, dived into June Medical, uh, but we've also looked at CELA law. So this is going to be a work in progress. And what we're probably going to end up doing, especially considering we're going to have more cases tomorrow. We're probably going to record tomorrow also. And um, Thursday, we'll probably have even more thoughts about what we've said today and reflect back on it as to whether or not our initial assessments uh, felt right. Uh, it still feel right days later. So
1: When we've shall, got 10 more opinions coming out. So this there were three today, 10 more left.
0: It's amazing. Amazing. Um, and there's a conference coming on Wednesday. Yeah. Explain, Sarah, why that might mean, possibly, could possibly mean we might have 10 opinions tomorrow. I
1: I mean, I now think that's unlikely since we only got three today, but there uh, is a conference at the end of the term when the justices have released all their opinions. So when they scheduled one for Wednesday, there was some, you know, chitter chatter uh, that perhaps they were going to try to put everything in on Monday and Tuesday this week. I now think that's a little unlikely because it would mean 10 cases tomorrow, but... Uh, not impossible, and I mean, uh, yeah, not impossible.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not expecting Tim, but it's, yeah, as well, you said. So
1: on the one hand, the May arguments were late, but on the other hand, the court likes to wrap up by the end of June. So we've got sort of two competing things here. Normally, I would say, yeah, they're getting it done for sure because nobody wants to go into the July 4th holiday. The The justices teach abroad and have summer plans. All of those have presumably gotten kicked to the wayside by a coronavirus. They're not going to Europe this year. Uh, but, you know, you still want to finish out by June. The problem yeah. is all these May opinions.
0: I, so I, I'm just going to go ahead and I want my wish list. I want uh, Guadalupe. I want Espinosa. And I want Little Sisters of the Poor, like one, two, three. And I all want them <laughs> to come out.
1: Trump finance cases? You're not.
0: Yeah, well, I'm I'm more like academically interested in the Trump finance cases. I'm more emotionally invested in the religious liberty cases. So after June medical, I, I kind of want to pick me up. And so <laughs> I'm I'm hoping for some good results from a religious liberty perspective in the um in the religious liberty cases. And it'd be great to just get them all tomorrow. Just to make you just feel a little bit better about life. But let's... let's.
1: Well, the one thing we know now on uh, SCOTUS bingo, Kavanaugh will not be writing, most likely, any of your May cases. Trump finance, uh, ministerial exception, Little Sisters of the Poor, most likely not Kavanaugh. That's all that we know from SCOTUS bingo. Okay.
0: Well, that doesn't tell us a lot. Um- not a lot. So, well, let's, let's dive into June Medical. Um, let's start with the top line. So the top line is, by an interesting 5-4 alignment, um, the Louisiana Admitting Privileges Law. This was a law that was very, very similar to a Texas Admitting Privileges Law that was struck down in a case um, five years ago called Whole Women's Health. Uh, by a five-three margin, that that case was five-three because Justice Scalia had passed away and his successor had not been confirmed yet. So that was a eight-person uh, alignment. Uh, Justice Kennedy provided the was the swing vote, uh, striking down a Texas admitting privileges law that uh, required an abortion provider to uh, uh, an abortion doctor to have admitting privileges at a hospital located within thirty miles of the abortion clinic. Louisiana also- had. Probably worth
1: noting uh, that we had a wonderful podcast on this case, but it talked a lot about whole women's health uh, with the solicitor general of Louisiana who argued this case right before her argument. So highly recommend if you're very into this case, go back and listen to that. It was right before she argued this case before the court. And we have a long discussion on whole women's health and what all that meant going into this.
0: Yes. Good. I'm glad you pointed that out. And so that was a five, three case. Now, This is important uh, when we're thinking about this case. Um, The three dissenting justices in that case were Justice Roberts, Justice Alito, and Justice Thomas. Since Whole Women's Health, we have had two justices added to the court, one removed. So Justice Kennedy retired, replaced by Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, Justice Gorsuch took the Scalia seat. So it's a substantially different court. But looking at a very similar statute, this was uh, in a Louisiana statute that uh, required abortion providers, abortion doctors to have admitting privileges in a hospital located within 30 miles of the abortion clinic. Um, the, The Court of Appeals in that case had upheld the Louisiana law in spite of the fact that it was almost identical to the Texas law that had been struck down. And it upheld it by saying, the facts are different in Louisiana from Texas. There would be less of a substantial boor- burden on abortion rights. Um, Louisiana went to the court and defended the law by saying, you don't have to overrule the key abortion precedents, Roe and Casey, to rule for us. This is important for the analysis later. Um, but to the extent that you cannot rule for us without overruling Whole Women's Health, we'd ask you to overrule Whole Women's Health, but they didn't even argue that it was necessary to overrule whole women's health to win. All right, with that as a wind-up, how did the case turn out? By an interesting 5-4 alignment where Justice Roberts voted to strike down the Louisiana statute, which was nearly identical to the Texas statute that he had voted to uphold five years before. Why? Starry decisis. So he didn't join with the liberal four justices on all of the reasoning in the case, the more progressive four justices, he basically stood with them in the re- mainly in the result only, that because of stare decisis and the value of a stable precedent, he was going to strike down the Louisiana law.
1: Footnote, stare decisis, Latin. A doctrine of stare decisis translates to stand by things decided. Yes. Please continue.
0: Yes. Now, There was an interesting alignment in the dissents. Uh, Justice Thomas wrote a pretty lengthy dissent all by himself, where he basically said a pox on all of the court's abortion jurisprudence. Um, Roe and Casey, Roe is made up out of whole cloth. Uh, uh, The court's abortion jurisprudence is just rotten to its core and should be overruled. He was alone in that dissent. The other justices, uh, Justice Alito wrote a dissent that Thomas also joined in part. uh, And the other justices joined in a dissent that, and here's a really important part of this one. Uh, In this, it said, um, one, there was not a proper plaintiff before the court. Uh, If a proper plaintiff is added, the district court should conduct a new trial and determine, based on proper evidence, whether enforcement of the Louisiana law would diminish the number of abortion providers in the state to such a degree that women's access to abortions would be substantially impaired. So this basically said, the dissent basically said, look, um, whole women's health doesn't stand for the proposition of striking down all statutes that, are, that require admitting privileges or equivalent statutes that require admitting privileges. Instead, we're required to do a factual analysis of whether or not there would be a substantially impaired access to abortion in the event that this law is upheld, that hasn't been fully done. Until that's fully done, um, if if at the end of the day that's fully done and there is substantial impairment, then that the those dissenting justices indicated that they would also strike down the law. Um, and so, and then so that's the sort of the basic gist of it. And Justice Kavanaugh had a, a brief dissent as well, um, but. I've monologued enough, Sarah. Um, What did I miss? What are your thoughts?
1: So I broke this into three different buckets for me that were interesting. And I think we should talk about all three. You've touched on all three. One is now the standard moving forward for abortion restriction laws, because that was a key point of contention uh, between the majority, Roberts' concurrence, and the dissenters. Second, Third-party standing doctrine, which will have implications far beyond this case of Mm -hmm. when you can bring a lawsuit trying to vindicate someone else's rights. Uh, There were, you know, four votes, certainly in the majority, that the abortion clinics had standing to bring this on behalf of their potential patients. And Roberts sided with them in footnote four. So hardly like a, you know...
0: <laughs> ringing endorsement. Yeah, boy. Yeah,
1: yeah I'm all for this. Um, and that was really on waiver. So we should get to that because I think that'll be a, a sticky thing going forward where abortion cases seem to have a different third-party standing doctrine than all other third-party standing doctrine. Right. And the last thing is, like, what does stare decisis mean uh, in terms of just abortion doctrine moving forward? Are there... How many votes are there to overturn Casey? And I guess I would say after this, maybe just one.
0: Yeah, that let's go on row. Yes.
1: Let's (laughs) dive
0: into that part of it, because this is what and because I think this is one where people are going to say, "Okay, what does this really mean for the right, the the abortion right itself? And yeah, and I did a quick Twitter thread um, that a number of people who may be right, because this is a speculative thread uh agree uh, disagreed with and i basically said look from a pro-life perspective this outcome is worse than you think and i'll just briefly read it because it's not that it's not that long a thread i said david
1: french citing david french
0: yes Quote. exactly
1: exactly
0: <laughs> that really uh, beefs up my citation record if i can just yes. go ahead and cite myself <laughs> So I said, uh, first, the abortion decision from a pro-life perspective is worse than you think. It's not really 5-4 on the core of the abortion right. It's more like 8-1. Only Thomas attacked Rowan Casey. The other.
1: Oh, man, I didn't even see you wrote this. You like, I just, OK, wow. Yeah, yeah we're in agreement on that.
0: The other dissenters say, essentially, apply Casey. This means in yep. plain English. That even the dissenters would likely strike down the Louisiana law if the plaintiffs could show that their access to abortion was substantially impaired. In other words, the law would be held upheld only if it didn't do much about abortion at all. It's true that Louisiana didn't ask the court to overrule Casey. That's important, important. Perhaps another justice agrees with Thomas, but all we know is what they just said and what they just said indicates that the core abortion right is at least as secure as it was in 1992 when Casey was decided. Sarah, agree or disagree?
1: I mean to exactly the caveats that you said, Casey was not briefed. Right. Uh and so maybe Some of that is just justices sort of taking this at face value, particularly Alito. But no question that the vote's there to apply the Casey standard. You know, you'd almost you'd expect potentially to see a footnote like, "I'm applying the Casey standard because they didn't ask us to reach Casey." uh, Yada yada. If we were asked to reach Casey, maybe some dicta along those lines, especially because it's a dissent anyway, and Alito hasn't exactly held his punches. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Um, So I agree. I think it's eight one to uphold casey at least in broad strokes.
0: And I would not say that. I would not say that if Thomas Hatton dissented and clearly dissented from Rowan Casey and no one joined him.
1: So <laughs> the cheese stands alone. Yes, the, and so <laughs> now if if
0: uh because you know some great folks, a good friends of mine, Ed Whalen, Ryan Anderson were saying that's not fair. That's a not a fair not a fair assessment. The only reason I made it, and I, I agree with them on this extent that you cannot definitively predict because the plaintiffs did not ask, or the state of Louisiana, I'm sorry, did not ask for Casey to be overturned. But Thomas went there by himself, uh, all by himself. And as you said, it's not as if like Alito has been pulling his punches lately um, at all. And so my... At the end of the day, I think here's where we are, Sarah. At the end of the day, I think we actually have reaffirmed that, uh, there, that there is a greater protection for abortion rights now than there was when Casey was decided because the combination of Whole Women's Health and June Medical have kind of changed the Casey test a little bit.
1: So, okay, let's go to then the first bucket, yeah, the first yeah. bucket, which is what is the standard moving forward? Uh, the four votes. So everyone's calling this a 5-4 decision. I would like us to call it a 4-1-4 four, four decision, yeah. even though technically that means something else. But uh, this is this, this is pretty close to a 4-1-4. Four, four. So the four uh, upholding, or sorry, striking down the Louisiana law, upholding uh, whole women's health, they wanted this balancing test that was in whole women's health, where it's like, on the one hand, is it a burden? On the other hand, what are the benefits? Something like that. a Briar balancing test, always our favorite right. um, thing from him. I have a friend who does the best Briar impression, by the way, and <laughs> Imagine that your case is a tiger. Now imagine that tiger has turned into a baguette. <laughs> what would the baguette? be cut into five slices <laughs> or eight. <laughs> uh, he can do the voice better. Um, so, but the Casey test is just the undue burden test. Yes. And what Roberts does in his his one, his concurrence, is say, I'm upholding uh, Whole Woman's Health, you know, under stare decisis. So I'm striking down the Louisiana abortion restrictions. But I do not adopt the whole women's health balancing test. Okay, but that's whole women's health.
0: Which you just upheld.
1: Which you just upheld. Yes. And the dissent sort of takes him to task for this, Gorsuch in particular, yeah. <laughs> I thought, of, um, you know, that case. It does not say what you think it says. Yeah. Um, so under Casey, the state, this is uh, Roberts' opinion, Under Casey, the state may not impose an undue burden on the woman's ability to obtain an abortion. Quote, a finding of an undue burden is a shorthand for the conclusion that a state regulation has the purpose or effect of placing a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion of a non-viable fetus. Laws that do not pose a substantial obstacle to abortion are permissible so long as they are reasonably related to a legitimate state interest. After faithfully reciting this standard, referring, he's now referring to the four... Mm -hmm other justices. The court in Whole Woman's Health added the following observation. The rule announced in Casey requires that courts consider the burdens a law imposes on abortion access together with the benefits those laws confer. The plurality repeats today that the undue burden standard requires courts to weigh the law's asserted benefits against the burden it imposes on abortion access. And he rejects this. Uh, Casey also rules out the balancing test adopted in Whole women's Health Whole Women's Health simply misinterpreted Casey, and I agree that Whole Women's Health should be overruled insofar as it challenged the Casey test. Unless Casey is reexamined, and Louisiana has not asked us to do that, the test is adopted and should remain the governing standard. That last part came from Alito. Right. So we end up with this messy, what is the test moving forward? And what's odd is that you have five votes to strike down the Louisiana law, and you have five votes to apply the Casey undue burden test because Roberts joins the Casey test with the four dissenters, but he joins upholding whole women's health with the four majority years. Right. <laughs> uh, and that's why I think it's a 414 opinion.
0: Yeah. I, I think that it's entirely possible that the next abortion case, whenever it's taken, could result in a five-four decision reaffirming the Casey test and rejecting the whole women's health test in the application to a different kind of statute. Um, I think the admitting privileges case—you uh, know—if you're going to—if you're going to try to send an admitting privileges case up to the Supreme Court, good luck with that. That's that's done.
1: <laughs> well, although I do think there is some chance, some chance that June Medical comes back.
0: You think there's some chance? No, explain, explain.
1: David's face was just like, oh God, no, no. (laughs)
0: No, we don't want to go through this again.
1: Well, it's getting remanded. If you apply the Casey standard on remand and the court finds that, you know, if it applies the five that have to apply the Casey test uh, versus the five that uphold whole women's health, you could end up with this coming back up again.
0: I, it's possible. It's theoretically possible, <laughs> unlikely, but theoretically possible. But yeah,
1: all you need is four votes.
0: But you know, so maybe this should wait for another, uh, another podcast, but my wheels are turning now about the, str- the legal strategy of the pro-life movement. What is the legal strategy yeah. of the pro-life movement going forward? Does, if, if the people who, cr-
1: or for that matter, the The pro-choice movement, I think both have to sit back for a second and think about what this means for both litigation strategies. What to challenge uh, on the pro-choice side, I think, just became interesting as well. Yeah,
0: I think it opened those horizons perhaps a little bit.
1: uh, Oh, I don't know. A little
0: bit. I don't know. I mean, I think it's a whole heck of a lot of status quo with maybe arguably a bit more abortion protective jurisprudence, but it's all up in the air because that exact alignment that we've just said that Roberts affirmed a case while disagreeing with the case. Mm.
1: (laughs) And if you're, I think on either side, like (laughs) this was a near miss for both sides in some Mm -hmm. ways. And so be careful approaching the chief. Be very, very careful. Yes. Uh, because I still don't think you know how he's going to come out on the next case.
0: And then, you know, on on basically sort of if you're if you're going to talk to anybody who has been spending any amount of time in the pro-life movement, you have all of this stuff about how strict or how loose is the undue burden test. That's all well and good. But the real question is, are Roe or Casey ever going to go away? Um, and. All of these challenges to the abortion restrictions that nibble around the edges always leave you with this problem of reading the tea leaves, and always leave leave you with this problem of sort of saying, "Okay, but what does that really say about the the one the giant elephant in the room that everyone really truly cares about, and that's the fate of Roe and Casey." And, um. You know, it raises an interesting question. Would it behoove the court to take a case like a heartbeat bill case that is completely and where you cannot finesse that through Casey in any way, shape, or form and just tell the world where they stand on the fundamental underlying right? I don't think they will. I don't think they will. I think the...
1: I don't think they'll take it and I don't think either side will have the chutzpah to to go for it.
0: Oh, I think a a state AG would lob a cert petition on... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, I think a state AG would lob a cert petition, but I don't think the court will take it. Um, I don't. I don't think that. I. I. I will. I don't know. I, I. It's possible that the progressive four, if they feel very confident, would take it for a reaffirmation decision. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. I think that the the short to medium term future of Supreme Court litigation around abortion is going to be. Parsing more of this, more of the multiple opinion, parsing of the test, peeling the test to pieces, um, incremental this way, incremental that way. Uh, It just it just feels like that's where we're going to go if we're even going to have another abortion case anywhere in the near future.
1: So when you talk to your pro-life litigation friends, uh, this was not an unexpected outcome
0: not sh- well i will say this a little surprising which part i would say that um that roberts could have simply remanded for further factual development under the under the casey standard upheld the louisiana mm-hmm. law under casey and and per- then said you know he could have joined the the alito dissent which is essentially hey find out if it's a um find out if this is actually a uh, substantial impairment, or he could have joined on the standing issue with the plaintiff, which we haven't even gotten into at all. Uh, I, what is not at all surprising is that nothing, I, and this is what I wrote after the oral argument, I was like pro-lifers who think that, oh, it's a new court, it's a new day. There was zero indication from the oral argument that anyone was considering any substantial change in the underlying abortion jurisprudence like that, that was just not at issue. And there was no hint that that was at issue. And so people putting a lot of stock into this is a big advance, uh, for the pro-life movement from oral argument, you just knew this was going to be incre- If it was going to be a win, it was going to be a, on the slightest incrementalist grounds.
1: So let's put this in the context then of the title seven case. uh, Uh, that was, I think more of a shock. And so it caused these reverberations within the movement. I don't think this was a shock. And so I'm not feeling a lot of the ripples going on, but at the same time, to your point, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are new to the court. There were, um, you know, the butt judges voters in 2016, and this is another loss on that. Now, mind you, uh, those justices voted in the dissent, but you have Roberts hanging out there in the middle, Living his best O'Connor life. Well, and
0: let's just go ahead and remind everyone why you want to listen to Advisory Opinions because who was not shocked about the Title VII case? (laughs) Me. You and me. We both, (laughs) neither one of us were shocked by the Title VII case. So keep listening, guys. Yeah. Um, We've kind of gotten some of these big ones right going in so far.
1: Although... I've been wrong about when Espinosa's coming out now for seven. Ah, years. well, de-
0: details, <laughs> details.
1: <laughs> Caleb, by the way, our producer just nodded with such a knowing smugness on that. His eyebrows were up in his hairline. Now, mm, yes.
0: <laughs> well, let, let's move on to standing because this this actually gets at something that is also irritating to me, um, and that I would think yes, so. and that is how rules seem to be, normal rules sometimes seem to be bent in abortion case law. Um, There's a reason why pro-life lawyers for years have referred to something called the abortion distortion, and that is that uh, abortion (laughs) exerts a gravitational pull on other legal doctrines in favor of abortion rights. And this, this one was, how is it that can, how can, is it that can, Doctors can file a lawsuit to preserve the rights of their patients, especially when the doctors are actually being regulated in the name of protecting the patients. Doesn't that create, isn't that not just third-party standard and uh, standing? Normally, I have to be the one, my rights have to be impaired before I can file a lawsuit. I can't file a lawsuit on behalf of other people and especially if there's a conflict of interest, um, a potential conflict of interest, and and this was an issue where I thought the dissent was especially pointed and vigorous was why are we doing this? Why not find an actual person who um, believes that their rights, an actual you know per, person seeking an abortion, who believes that this burdens their rights, and why not find the proper plaintiff and go through this that. And go through this litigation. And and that was an aspect of this that I think is esoteric to a lot of people. You say standing doctrine and and even most lawyers start to like fall asleep. But...
1: (laughs) Well, maybe it's worth a few minutes on standing, what that really means. So uh, there's a threshold question for courts called jurisdiction. Uh, There's a few things that can reach jurisdiction. These are unwaivable, meaning the court can sua sponte decide in fact must decide that it has jurisdiction is there a case or controversy uh is it the right court to bring it in front of things like this where uh whether the parties raise it or not the court can say we just don't have jurisdiction and the case is kicked standing is like the next one after that okay so we have jurisdiction you're in the right court there really is a case or controversy yada 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 are these the right people in front of me to argue this? But it can be waived. Right. If neither party raises it, the court does not have to raise it on their own. And so what a lot of what was at stake here was there was a third party standing argument raised, but it might've been raised too late. And so in his footnote, uh, Chief Justice Roberts says, for the reasons the plurality explains at pages 11 through 16, I agree that the abortion providers in this case have standing to assert the constitutional rights of their patients. Well, pages 11 through 16 state that the argument was waived, Mm -hmm. but then goes on to say, in any event, (laughs) they would have had standing. So here's what's weird to me. The in any event almost certainly dicta because they just said it was waived. So normally I would have read footnote four without the page numbers to mean that he was simply again, the fifth vote saying that third party standing argument had been waived. However, because he put the page numbers that included the dicta, he could have said pages 11 through 12, for instance, that would have just been the waiver argument, but he said 11 through 16 which included the dicta on third-party standing, basically not applying to abortion providers. Right. Oh, Sarah. So that's weird. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and the the dissent, to your point, the dissents uh, plural, uh, point out that you know, in at least one pretty famous case, a father was not allowed to bring a lawsuit on behalf of his yep. child because their interests were in conflict. This was uh, a prayer in school case. Uh, And it was like, well, the child doesn't have a problem with it, so the parent doesn't have standing to sue on behalf of the child. This is far from that. This is doctors who are being asked to jump through potentially uh, hurdles that cost money or time, and then saying, not that their constitutional rights are being violated by having to jump through those hurdles. There's no constitutional right to provide an abortion, but that their patients' rights are being violated, even though, in theory, the regulations are meant to protect those patients and increase the burden on the right. doctors. It would be unheard of in another context, I think, to allow that conflict in a third party standing doctrine, which the dissent points out quite nicely. The majority. Uh, definitely said, like, in abortion cases, we have found third-party standing for doctors many times. That is true.
0: That's true. (laughs) That's true. That is accurate. accurate. That's, again, what I refer to as the abortion distortion. I mean, to sort of put this in a way uh, that helps people understand the conflict of interest, uh, Matt, let's take it out of the hot-button topic like abortion, and let's put it in a context of, say, getting somebody's ears pierced. Imagine if you ha- impose, or are a tattoo parlor, and what what happens okay. is uh, a, pa- a, a state passes a provision that requires a certain new form of tattoo gun to be used, which is more sanitary. I don't, I know nothing about tattoos, so
1: <laughs>
0: ta- either tattoo artists, listeners, uh, please forgive me, or those who've received tattoos, please forgive me. I know nothing about this.
1: Well, do they have standing? <laughs>
0: well, right, they have standing to forgive me if I'm wrong. Um, so let's say you have a new standard that says um, your, your tattoo gun needs to be uh, more san- more sophisticated and sanitary, and that puts a financial burden on the on the tattoo artist. Um, that burden is put there for the benefit of the customer, and so for the tattoo artist to say. I should have less burden, which is theoretically for the benefit of the customer and assert that on behalf of the customer is not the kind of case that is going to be brought <laughs> in virtually any other legal context. And I think that that is, um, you know, that that's, again, I'll say it again, that that is one of the reasons why the dissent, I think, was particularly, in, in some ways, particularly pointed in this case.
1: Yeah, and, Uh, not a ringing endorsement on third-party standing from Roberts. I mean, it is in a footnote and it does simply cite page numbers, not the reasoning. So I think there's some argument to be made in the future that he was pointing to the waiver part, not the standing itself part. Uh, That seems more ripe for future litigation, actually, than maybe any of this other Casey standards, stare decisis on whole women's health. Um, I would maybe go after the third-party standing doctrine.
0: Now... Sarah, I have a question for you. Where does this where does this case outcome leave you on your sort of overall theory of this term and Justice Roberts?
1: Well, that's interesting. I think that it will all turn on the Trump financial mm. cases, which you have only a sort of sports interest <laughs> in. <laughs> uh, but I think that is going to be the real tell on where Roberts is going because he's always when it comes to these cultural, like abortion in particular, um, if he's the swing vote, I mean, I could have told you this was coming out this right. way. Right. <laughs> I'm surprised it's not a, a true four-one-four.
0: Yeah. one Yeah, it's, you know, but the interesting thing is on I mean, some of these, Roberts has always been very solid uh, with the Republican nominee block on, say, religious liberty cases. Um, and has been very willing to uh, reach a to to strike down existing case law in other in other contexts. I mean, Citizens United.
1: Well, and let me, yeah, and and you know what's going to come down the pike here real soon, affirmative action, and his famous line: "If you want to stop discrimination on the basis of race, stop discriminating on the basis of race." Uh, after the Title VII case, uh, we talked about this when that first came out. The Cass Sunstein had written this piece about how this would now be applied to affirmative action, and it would get rid of. Uh, affirmative action, the main affirmative action case from 1979. Uh, yeah, that's coming yeah. now. Lots of people are writing on the fact that this changes everything with title seven affirmative action. The case is pending against Harvard, uh, brought by Asian American students that say they were discriminated against other, uh, racial quotas. Um, that is like a big boulder just rolling down the hill. I think the court will take it, uh, whether it will be ready for next term feels a little unlikely. I think we're one more term right. away. And so like, that's a good example where Roberts had been very clear about his feelings about it, but he was in the dissent on whole women's I health, know. David.
0: <laughs> I know he was absolutely in the dissent on whole women's health. Um, yeah.
1: It, it Whether his vote matters affects his vote. Yes. And you know what? That may be true for quite a few of us. I talk to voters all the time when we're talking about Trump versus Biden, for instance, who will say who they're voting for and then say, "But, you know, I live in New York. Yeah, my vote doesn't yeah. matter. So I can vote for whoever yeah. I want. And you talk to voters in, well, what used you know what used to be Ohio. It's still Ohio, but Ohio is no longer what it used to be. Uh, and you know, they really are like, well, I mean, it, they feel a lot of weight for that vote in a way that I think Justice Roberts does when he becomes the fifth vote.
0: I I have basically come to the conclusion, two conclusions regarding Justice Roberts in this moment. And uh, Justice Roberts, if you're listening, you may chuckle at this because we're psychoanalyzing you, and we may get it all wrong. But yeah, sorry. <laughs> right. But here 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 are the two conclusions. One conclusion, one is I think he's over the Trump administration. Uh, and that's the census case, and and that's the DACA case, which basically are both saying, "Do your job better," and maybe I'll ru- ru- maybe I'd rule for you. So that's conclusion one. <laughs> conclusion <laughs> two is I think the the bigger the earthquake of a potential, the bigger the earthquake of a potential ruling, the less likely Roberts is to. Well, he he is anti-earthquake. So...
1: Would you... I mean, maybe you're, like, Burkean. Would you say that Roberts is the Burkean <laughs> of the court? Uh, non-revolutionary change, incremental though it may be. I mean, because this was... Um, you could read this as a very Burkean opinion. He did get rid of the whole women's health part that he found most objectionable and said that we needed to go back to Casey, and he is the vote for that, which makes it a five-vote... Majority for the Casey burden. Um So in that sense, he has made his incremental change in abortion analysis. And in that sense, your Twitter feed is wrong and there's a lot to celebrate if you're uh, pro-life because the whole women's health standard was you were never gonna uh, have an abortion restriction that would meet the whole women's health standard. And lots of them will meet the Casey standard.
0: That is... That is the take of someone who walks into a room and sees a pile of manure and says, there's got to be a horse here somewhere.
1: (laughs) No, I see a pile of manure and think, that will make great fertilizer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But he did actually uh, uh, refer to Burke. Roberts did refer to Burke in his concurrence. And uh, I believe it was Justice Thomas who was having none of that.
1: Uh, (laughs) A Burkean minimalist. I I have a lot of sympathy for Burkean minimalists.
0: But I would say uh, I think he's anti-earthquake. I think that he saw a um, striking down of Obamacare, uh, the biggest, you know, one of the most consequential pieces of social legislation in a generation. And I think he saw the idea of the of the Supreme Court striking that down as earthquakey.
1: Four months before um, an election.
0: Four months before an election, he's not willing to do this. I think he
1: both of these understands- being about four months before an election.
0: Exactly. That there are a few issues at the court that are more earthquakey than um, abortion. And he he quite explicitly doubled down on the status quo here. But when it's a when it's a point of constitutional law that basically, you know, if you're going to interview 100 Americans uh, and ask them about the the point of legal principle. And maybe only two of them can give you a coherent answer. He can be really bold.
1: <laughs> well, um, and I think I think affirmative action, interestingly, falls on the other side of that. I think affirmative action is yes. much closer to abortion and Obamacare in terms of uh, most voters know what affirmative action is. But on the other hand, if you poll affirmative action, it doesn't poll particularly well. And that was not true right. of... Abortion or Obamacare, and again, before we get a lot of mail, I'm not saying that abortion is wildly popular in the country, but affirmative action actually is pretty skewed.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, when you when you poll that issue, it comes out quite different from sort of elite opinion around uh, affirmative action. Yes, uh, and and abortion, the polling in abortion is just flat out all over the place. I mean, it so depends on how you ask the question. I was
1: just going to say, it depends a lot on the pollster I found. (laughs) Yes, yes,
0: indeed. I can find
1: you a poll to support any line you'd like about how people feel about abortion.
0: Yeah, there is a, you know, the funny thing is, and I actually made this point in the comment section because somebody in my Sunday newsletter, I was talking about how people are, there's actually less hatred than we believe. uh, I loved your newsletter this
1: week. Loved it. Oh, thank you. It was it was touching. Uh, Made me happy.
0: Oh, good. And um, and somebody was saying to me, no, 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 abortion is every bit as polarizing as you imagine. And and I said, you know, certainly there are two competing philosophical viewpoints about abortion that are quite up op- opposite from each other. But most Americans have not adopted either one of those two competing philosophical perspectives they just have it that's right and and you can say that's muddled you can say that's you know fuzzy thinking you can say whatever you want to say about it but that's where people are and
1: it just it's generally
0: it's generally the case that the that the closer a uh, baby gets to delivery the more people want to protect the baby and the further away the baby is from delivery the fewer people are interested in protecting the baby. That sort of row framework, that that trimester framework, has had a lot of enduring cultural power in the United States of America. And so people are a lot more muddled than the competing philosophical positions would seem to indicate. Let's pause for a moment and thank our sponsor, ExpressVPN. Being stuck at home these days, you probably don't think much about internet privacy on your own home network. Fire up incognito mode on your browser and no one can see what you're doing, right? Wrong. Even in incognito mode, your online activity can still be traced. Even if you clear your browsing history, your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why if you care about your privacy, never go online without using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN makes sure your internet service provider can't see what sites you visit. Instead, your internet connection is rerouted through ExpressVPN secure servers. Each ExpressVPN server has an IP address that's shared among thousands of users. That means everything you do is anonymized and can't be traced back to you. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data with best-in-class encryption, so your information is always protected. Use the internet with confidence from your computer, tablet, or smartphone. ExpressVPN has you covered on every device. Simply tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the fastest and most trusted VPN on the market. It's rated number one by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and countless more. So protect your online activity today with the VPN you should trust to secure your privacy. Visit my special link at expressvpn.com opinions. And you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash opinions. Expressvpn.com slash opinions to learn more.
1: Well, let's make sure we get to some CFPB. Yes. So, uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, created under the Obama administration... Ha- is an independent agency headed by a single director. And it was part of the Dodd-Frank Act. And so there were really two things at issue here. One, can an independent agency headed by a single director uh basically only be removable for inefficiency, neglect of duty or malfeasance in office by the president? Or does that violate separation of powers? That was number 1. Number 2, If you can't have that, what happens to Dodd-Frank or the CFPB? So uh, not shocking how this turned out. The court held that, in fact, it does violate the separation of powers for the president not to be able to remove uh, the head of an independent agency, a single head that's not at will, that they're exerting executive power and it can't be separate from the executive branch created by Congress to have just like little baby executive right. branches running around. Um, some notes on that, though. There were a couple votes <laughs> to basically overturn independent agencies. <laughs> yes. So this is based on a case called Humphrey's Executor, which is a great name, maybe because the name Humphrey is just like a delightful name and more people should name their child Humphrey. And I know I just had the opportunity to do that and passed it by. Shame on me. Uh, although I think Nate's pretty happy to not be named <laughs> Um So Humphrey's executor upheld the Federal Trade Commission way, way, way back in the day, 100 years ago. The argument there was that the Federal Trade Commission wasn't you know, exerting executive action. It was this multi-member board. It was partisanly even. Uh, they were for set terms and rotating set terms so that every president would get to, you know, pick some people. There were all these little protections in place that are irrelevant to the Constitution, I would argue. But um, nevertheless, so there were a couple votes for overturning Humphrey's executor, which would uh, basically get rid of all independent agencies.
0: Sarah, I would be so down for that. Um,
1: (laughs) Justice Kagan was not down for it, David. I'm not down for it. I know. In the Um. dissent. And then on the second issue of whether it was severable, severability law, and I know several of you just went to sleep. If you're driving, wake up, wake up. We're going to talk about severability briefly. Severability is really important because it's going to come up over and over and over again. And it's going to come up in the fall with the biggest case that they have on Obamacare and the individual mandate. And so the severability law they've made in this case is really important to next term, actually. Uh, And in this case, they held that just the director's appointment was totally severable from CFPB itself and its creation and Dodd-Frank. So when we're talking about the individual mandate next term, that's interesting because the individual mandate is at the very heart of Obamacare. So is it going to be severable like this was when clearly severability doctrine is, um, when we're excising these little tumors, we're we're excising smaller and smaller portions under this court severability doctrine. But Obamacare is going to challenge that. Yeah. So we'll severability
0: see. doctrine. Let's sum it up. Um, are you excising a wart or the aorta? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And in this case, it was a wart. But again, with um, with a lot of thoughts on severability in these opinions because they know that they're. This is a proxy yeah. war at this point. No,
0: I I agree completely with you that this was an extremely predictable outcome. Um, the practice, yeah. as a practical matter, it is more power for the president, um, and which was, you know, the the in this yeah in the severability kind of. argument, the reason why the severability argument was non-frivolous is arguably one of the purposes of the CFPB was to create a degree of independence from the president. That was. Why it was done like this, uh, but the bottom line is the president's power gets a little bit bigger because he once again he has another agency that he controls where he has the absolute authority uh, over the director. Now, let me just say this about Humphrey's executor. So, if you're an originalist like me, um, I just want to read to you a, a point two in the syllabus of the case. This is May 27th, 1935. And this is this, this paragraph makes somebody like me just break out in hives.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm excited for this. Don't know what he's going to say. This construction
0: of the act, this is the construction of the act where they, they upheld, you know, they upheld the independent commission, is confirmed by consideration of the character of the commission, an independent, nonpartisan body of experts charged with de- duties, neither political nor. Nor executive, but predominantly quasi-judicial and quasi-legislative, and by the legislative history of the act. Now, I don't have my handy pocket constitution with me right now, Sarah. Oh,
1: no, it's an Article 14.
0: Yeah, Article. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm. I'm really interested in the quasi-judicial, quasi-legislative branch of government.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> so if you overturn Humphrey's Executor, which this case did not reach, obviously, but there's clearly some votes percolating for it. <laughs> um, you could end up with some really interesting stuff because then the question becomes, is the independent agency exerting executive power? And I think you could argue that in 1935, actually, the FTC was not maybe exerting executive power for all I know. I'm, I'm no historical expert on what the original purpose of the FTC was and what they were doing. But let's, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that they really weren't having any executive power. That's not true anymore. All of these independent agencies exert some form of executive power. uh, And that could be the new post-Humphrey's test, in which case, all of those independent agencies um, would have some real problems. You could get rid of them in their current form and make them not independent, possible. Or you could end up with something like what happened to the bankruptcy courts, where you actually just strip their ability to do the executive action Mm -hmm. and only leave them with non-executive powers. So leave them totally in place as independent, but go back to Humphrey's executor in that sense. Right. And say, that's fine, but you can't do all of these things anymore. And that has to live within either the legislative or the executive branch. That would be pretty interesting. That is um, exactly what the dissent does not want. And what the administrative state really, really does not want, because that would then have this trickle down effect, I think, through the rest of the administrative state. Yeah. Of um, no more quasis.
0: Yeah, I think we're way far away from that. I think you would need I don't know. Yeah.
1: I'm not saying it's happening next term. Right. But you know, Gorsuch has uh spoken out many times on Chevrani feelings. This is this is part of the Chevron litter, yeah. I would say. Yeah,
0: no, I would say, I would the say, I would the litter part, of Chevron the, puppies. Part of the well, I was going to say I I took litter Our? in a different way. I took litter as oh. in like refuse.
1: <laughs> part of that too. Part of the Chevron There's the Hour puppy, the Chevron puppy, the Humphreys puppy. <laughs>
0: right, exactly.
1: Actually, these would be great names if you're having a litter of puppies. Please consider letting me name your puppies.
0: <laughs> Chevron Hour and Humphreys. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, the (laughs) the administrative state brotherhood of puppies. Um, Okay, now we've lost everybody. Um,
1: So should we... Well, they ran off the road during severability, so... Uh, It
0: did. It did. (laughs) So should we bring everyone back by just skipping straight to um, Will Ferrell?
1: Yeah, let's do it. Uh, The last case, just of 30 seconds, basically said that constitutional rights... Outside of America's borders, not so much. This actually fits with the immigration case from last week, too, where just touching foot at the border was not enough to um, undo expedited removal. So there's just sort of a theme running through those of, you know, the Constitution applies to uh, inside America's borders for Americans. If you're, you know, outside, independent from us, you just don't have the benefits of those constitutional rights.
0: So we were pondering, um, thank you for that summary, by the way, we were pondering our culture topic and I was relating that I had spent last night watching Eurovision by Will Ferrell. Um, I love, I, I look, I am pro Will Ferrell. It's hard for me to think of a Will Ferrell movie that I don't like. As I was explaining to, uh, Nancy and the kids who were declining to join me in watching the movie, wow. declining. Can you believe that? That's, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I said, because they didn't That's like the trailer. Bad, they didn't come on. And I said, there are two kinds of Will Ferrell movies. There's the good and the great. And
1: Wait, wait, really quick though. When you're sent away to watch a movie on your own, do you get to watch it on like the main TV yes. that you would get to watch other movies or are you relegated to like your laptop in the basement? No,
0: no, I, I get the main TV.
1: I get the main TV. That's interesting. Okay, because when I want to watch like um, the new Emma, <laughs> <laughs> I go to the bed with my laptop. It's like my own little special cave. It's like a man cave, but for um, you know Jane. Austen. It's not
0: negotiable. <laughs> Will Ferrell is on the big screen. I mean, that's okay. just okay. that's how it is. Um,
1: Good to know.
0: But so I I watched it. I put it in the middle of the Will Ferrell pack, which means I thoroughly enjoyed it. But then that led to a green room discussion prior to the podcast of what is the Mount Rush for, the Mount Rushmore of Will Ferrell movies and why? And Sarah, you're Mount Rushmore. I
1: mean, uh, for those who have heard me discuss best presidents, uh, you have <laughs> to go George Washington for best president because even though that's a boring answer, in fact, like what he chose to do and what not to do was just so important, you know. Uh, my heart's with Lincoln, perhaps. Uh, no, definitely my heart's with Lincoln. But you know, Washington is, is the guy, uh, Anchorman is Washington, right? Mm. Like there's no, there's, you know, your heart may be with something else, (laughs) but Anchorman is the definitive best Will Ferrell movie. I couldn't believe it's from 2004, David. Oh my God. How old? Oh no. I know. (laughs) If you had asked me, I would have said like, I don't know, 2012. Yeah. (laughs) Like I get it. Wasn't yesterday, but like 2004. Wow. It's 16 years old. That's like when I, I, this won't matter to anyone else, when I graduated high school and people would talk about like Animal House, I loved the movie Animal House, but like it was an old movie to me. Like that's what talking to a current high school grad thinks of Anchorman. Oh no.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. A current <laughs> high school grad thinking about Anchorman is, I mean, it was an old movie when they were old enough to start watching movies. <laughs> that's insane yeah
1: so they actually probably do think of it like animal house for me yeah a great movie but like a throwback you know like i felt very cool for knowing animal house references it would be like
0: monty python and the holy grail for me
1: oh another great the
0: quotable great movie so quotable (laughs) but but so you've got your washington what's your lincoln
1: i don't know i don't know i mean the other guys certainly has some lincoln-esque qualities (laughs) Um, what's yours?
0: So my Washington is also Anchorman. It used to be Talladega Nights and until, and then when I switched over to being a journalist, I had to pay homage to the goat journalist, Ron Burgundy. So.
1: (laughs) Oh, wait, you know what? No, no. I know what my Lincoln is. Okay. My Lincoln is the campaign. Oh my goodness. Which no one appreciated. I thought it was so spot on and actually one of the more (laughs) accurate campaign movies that has ever come out. Uh, Yeah, 100% the campaign.
0: So, oh, that's fascinating. I put campaign middle of the pack. So I, my Washington is Anchorman. uh, My Lincoln is Talladega Nights. Um, Mm, Just. Fair. Phenomenal. Uh, My Jefferson is old school. He's not even the star really of old school. (laughs)
1: But he, and it has some problems, but... <laughs> and, I mean, but he's the breakout.
0: He's the he's the breakout cameo. Like, it's the... He has his heat-check moment. He's like Steph Curry draining three after three after three <laughs> from deep with the, each moment he has. He just steals, steals the scene, so...
1: Okay, then mine for that is probably going to be Zoolander. Again, not the lead. <laughs> Maybe shouldn't be up there. But like, I mean, you can't have Zoolander without Will Ferrell.
0: And then I'm going to go with a shocker on number on my Roosevelt.
1: On your Roosevelt? Okay, let's hear My Roosevelt.
0: Ordinarily, one would say the other guys or ordinarily one would say stepbrothers. Um, But I'm going with the most underappreciated, but yet rewatchable movie, Blades of Glory. (laughs) Will Ferrell Not and Chaz bad. Michael Michaels. <laughs> and the first all-male pairs figure skating team that includes a, a uh, trick. Do you call them a trick or a stunt or whatever? A flip? <laughs> so dangerous <laughs> that it led to a decapitation <laughs> in North Korea.
1: Uh, I mean, I have to go the other guys.
0: Solid, solid, very close. Yeah, solid.
1: But now um, I am going to watch Eurovision because as you may be aware, I have, uh, you know, about 15 to 30 minutes each night that I can (laughs) watch a movie. (laughs) So it's going to take me a few days, listeners. uh, But I will get back to you whether I think that David, per usual, overrates (laughs) everything he sees Ah. because he's such a good hearted person. I'm not sure we've ever talked about something that David didn't find redeeming qualities in and love
0: well as kyle smith uh, uh, the beloved film critic at Nash review uh we would have constant arguments because i've never seen a bad superhero movie i i've in the modern era a modern era of superhero movies which i'm not sure exactly when it begins maybe the first of the modern uh x-men movies every one okay. of them has been good like, every one of them has been... <laughs>
1: it's not your fault. Yeah. They've just all been so good. Yeah,
0: they're at least good, <laughs> Okay, sometimes great, and occasionally transcendent. But I'm a fan. What's, I'm not a critic.
1: What's the What's the worst movie you've seen that you can think of that was, like, actually bad? Like, bad. It wasn't good. You can't say anything good. There's no however. There's no but. Oh,
0: that was actually that I I was, like, left the movie theater mad or, like, Sad. Like why or did why I? Why like, did I do that? I
1: will never get those two hours back.
0: Oh man! I, when did I? When did <laughs> I last say that? It's been a long <laughs> time. I've gotten a lot better at pre-screening. I'll have to. I'll have to think about that.
1: Okay, that'll be next. That'll be tomorrow. Though. Yes, <laughs> you you have tonight to think about it. Tomorrow we'll talk about the worst movies that we've ever yeah, seen.
0: Where I come prepared. Where I just go. I can't believe what I just saw. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the 80s, I was a much more indiscriminate movie watcher. I can probably, I could probably.
1: That's weird because you feel pretty indiscriminate now. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lord only knows what he was watching before. Uh, yeah. All right. David, I will see you tomorrow morning for our 10 a.m. green room where we just send back emojis to each other. OMG, wow, CFPB, abortion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Those are our conversations. Exactly. At 10 just
0: one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But I say Espinosa comes tomorrow. I say Little Sisters of Poor comes tomorrow. I say uh, Guadalupe comes tomorrow. And they're all going to come out the way I want them to come out. I'm just going to say it.
1: (laughs) And I'm not going to say anything because I'm so tired of being wrong.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, be ready, listeners. Normally, you have a couple of days to listen to the podcast before the next one comes out. Now, we're going rapid fire. We're going rapid fire. We'll be back, right back at you tomorrow. But until then, thanks so much for listening. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts. Um, five stars only, please. We've gotten some great feedback that I've really enjoyed uh, that's, that's buried the really occasional, very, very, very rare, totally misguided, <laughs> bad review.
1: You mean the... The ones where they say, Sarah's great, David, not so much. Yeah, those,
0: those, (laughs) who needs that? Who needs that? Uh, But again, thank you so much for listening and we'll, we'll talk to you tomorrow.